0: Welcome to the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by me, Paul Spain, along with Guerrilla Technology. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and today we have... Ryan the Lion, or Ryan Ashton, as he's officially known on his birth certificate, uh, the chief yarner at A Few Quiet Yarns. Uh, the Lion is, uh, is a networker, uh, sales and marketing extraordinaire, with multiple strings to his bow in addition to A Few Quiet Yarns. And so we're going to hear about that and learn from his many years of experience in this world of, of sales and marketing uh, and business. So welcome along, Ryan, how are you? Very good, Paul. Thank you so much for having me
1: and um, that's a big introduction to live up to. I hope I can do it justice. So yeah, let's jump into it and have some
0: fun. All right. Well, as uh, as some people on uh, LinkedIn said, it's going to be the uh, the gorilla and the lion today. So it <laughs> yeah. um, should be a bit of fun. I like to get started by just getting back to the background in a little bit in terms of where were you born? Where did, where did you grow up? So I was born in Dunedin in Queen Mary Hospital. Which by the
1: time I was first year university was my one of my good mates at uh, university hostels. Uh, so <laughs> just to really link things together, but yeah, I come from uh, Wakari, uh, Dunedin and uh, grew up there before you know, heading off on my OE um, and then circling back to Auckland after that.
0: Excellent. So when was it that you uh, you you know you figured out that you like to you like to have a bit of a yarn, a bit of a a bit of a chat, and that that, that sort of. You know, networking aspect was uh, was you know part of part of who you are today. Well, it was
1: certainly my later years. So I used to be a pretty shy kid, yeah, and a very quiet kid. And most people can't believe it, so I have to show them photos. Even to the extent I'd stand behind my mum and dad. So if we we're at the sports club or a picnic or a friends' place, you know, I'd always start at the position of sort of just behind the your mum and dad's
0: flank. As I so, was doing that the other day, actually, I I bumped into a. a Friend that uh, might attend, and next minute's like, where's he gone? And yeah. so uh, right know. behind you, yeah.
1: Um, so it's funny because uh, it wasn't until uh, towards the end of high school, and uh, I think it was actually the end of year seventh form party that I really came out of my shell and went, holy crap, there's a whole nother world out there because I used to be in the sort of. In the top stream classes and wasn't allowed to do art which we'll talk about in a second wasn't allowed to do art because i was too intelligent i had to do my physics chemistry and maths and invent the next laser or the next surgery and i was destined to be you know doctor lawyer architect so um, when i dropped out of unity after my first year to become an art director a lot of my old um, teachers were were horribly surprised but the truth be known when i was six years old went on a um, early settlers museum trip you know the school trip Uh, I sat there and redrew a piece of art on the wall, almost to photographic detail, and ended up having a story in the paper about it and all the rest of it. So um, I've always been into art and into creative um, lines. But uh, I also got a little bit annoyed because after that, as a six-year-old, and you had every man and dog going, Ryan, can you draw me a birthday card? Ryan, can you draw the cover of my project? Ryan, Ah, can you ah, draw... ah. And I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to draw another thing. But, you know, if you go full circle of going through school, not being allowed to do art at high school because that's where all the bad kids go to smoke dope up the back of the Targa boys. Not true, but... Uh, so I did physics, chemistry and maths and then at the you know, university point um, ended up doing design um, and then ended up leaving after one year to take a job as an art director uh, which led to being part of a team that won seven advertising awards. Well, they, actually, they actually won more in total but I was part of the teams that won seven of them. That's um,
0: incredible. That's... Uh, that's- Amazing to go, you know, to kick off a career at that at sort of pace and to, to do well. We, were you in that field for, for a long time? Uh, no. So um,
1: it was actually my parents who, after watching me party through first year, said, maybe you should take a job and learn what the real world's like. Pay some bills. Um, Smart parents. Yeah. Yeah. So you know any parents out there? Uh, and because, yeah, I, I guess I'd floundered from being – you know, high marks in the in the um, serious subjects to mucking around. Um, and, you know, part of that first year uni, um, I was drawing all the posters for all the parties and um, ended up in the, I don't know what you call them, but um, ended up in the um, office of the serious important people being quizzed about these party posters that I was running. Um, and I think that's probably where I first, first learnt um, some sales negotiation And I've got a couple of instances through life where I just decided to take the bull by the horns and uh, I was sitting there getting told off about these parties that I was running and I I flipped it and I said, well, hang on. How many incidents have you had um, security called to? How many incidents have you had the police called to? How many complaints have you had from females being treated poorly by males? How many things have gone wrong around these parties? And they had to confess that nothing. So we actually negotiated a deal where I was still allowed to run the parties and they would let me away with it, but I could not tell anyone that I had the permission of the security to do so outside the rules of the university.
0: Until <laughs> until this very podcast. Yeah. Now it's out there. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, so yeah. So yeah. And and then later on in life, I um, uh, did a, Yeah, you know, took the ball by the horns in a similar way, but it's a good transferable skill when we get to the marketing part of the discussion. But, Coming back to the first question, um, you know, where'd you start? It was it was probably that first um, real job as an art director um, and coming back to my creative roots. So coming full circle, I, I got to go and speak at my school. They said, "Oh, as an old boy, come back and and um, you know, talk to the boys about your, your journey and getting a job. So I, I sort of sprung one on them and said, hey, boys, don't do what your parents tell you. Don't do what the teacher tells you. Don't do what the rector, that's what we call principal or the Target Boys, don't do what they tell you you got to follow your passion, follow your guts because I got told to do all the science, maths and whatnot and I could do it but I didn't like it. And then finally I come back full circle to what I wanted to do which was creative. Now in third form they said there's no job being an artist, you'll be a poor artist living on the street but you can actually be a art director, creative director, um, You know, work for some of the biggest agencies in the world and earn lots of money, there's a career in anything and you'll do much better doing what you're passionate about. And um, the teachers are on the sidelines going, no, no, shh, no, shh. um But that was my little piece, my um, snippet that I shared back. Um, and I yeah, had my little uh, moment of pleasure doing so because that would be my advice to all kids now and parents is, yeah, let them follow their passion because they will find their feet in, in their passion.
0: There could there be a level of balance to that, can't there? Oh,
1: of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um, now, so moving on from the art world, you, you got involved in uh, restaurants as well, the restaurant world?
1: Yeah, so um, while I was a high-flying and award-winning art director and got a chip in my other 15 minutes of fame, uh, we did the only All Blacks work outside of Saatchi and Saatchi, and that was off the back of doing the Highlanders work and the first test match in Dunedin in something like 12 or 15 years. So we we um, took the ball by the horns, went backwards about coming forward, so we mocked up uh, an example, and it was our boys, our crowd, our town, i.e., and it was the Otago All Blacks um, in, the, in the promotion. And luckily NZRU said, yeah, we like it, it's great. And that was how it came about. And on the night of it going to print for everything from billboards to you name it, um, they there was an injury, so they announced another Otago player in there. So at 11 o'clock at night I had to go down to the studio and flip, I think it was, flip Carl Hof over from left to right and put Case Mew's head on Carl Hoff's body because we didn't have a photo of the new player ah, in their, in no. their all-black uniform. Um, but that was the two props, Karl Hoff and Case Mew. So it was just, you know, flip one to the other and, and get the the head on there. So I used to do, you know, from the, um, I guess, from basic creative direction through to the Mac operation. Um, and that was, yeah, one of
0: the things we had to do. So. Wow, wow. Wow, oh, that's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. And, and then, um, you know, you didn't stay oh, there hospitality, for, for sorry, forever yes. And then uh, it was the ho- that's hospital, right. hospitality so, world.
1: So while I was doing all this, um, I was about to go in my OE. So I was 22 and a half. For any non-New Zealand listeners, that's OE? and an overseas experience because we live at the bottom of the world, um, not attached to anybody else. So we can't walk across the border. We have to swim, fly, boat, um, it's a pretty long paddle, but generally fly. So the and how long
0: was was your overseas experience?
1: Um, just under four years. So um, I thought before I take off, I, I better have some experience, in bars to fall back on, because you know I heard that's what a lot of people did. So I started working at a bar called Diva and and um, uh, Dunedin, which those back in the day, back in nineteen ninety nine. Um, will remember as um, uh, one of the top places. So that was a really good experience. And when I went to Australia, um, uh, I was an immigrant and couldn't get a job in my field um, of uh, art director. So I had to fall back on doing bar work. And when we get to the AFQI Kiwiana and all the work that I've done helping new Kiwis, you know, people that come from, you know, typically non-English speaking countries with very different cultures, they almost fall over when I say I went to Australia and couldn't get a job in my field either, so I had to fall back on doing something, which was the bar work. Um, but that led to a whole new world and a whole new um, slice of fun after working at Friday's on the waterfront in Brisbane for about six months. So my first step was Brisbane. I then went on to London and worked in a range of the top-end clubs, uh, including managing a Michelin star restaurant for Marco Pia White. Well, wow. well, actually, the team that run the restaurant for Marco Pierwhite. Gotta to, gotta to add that in. While he was the owner and he did turn up and, and attend, there was, you know, a whole team of yep. head chef, head security, general manager, et cetera. And my official title was VIP host and VIP floor manager. So I reported to the assistant general manager, who reported the general manager, who reported to the head of security, who reported to the chef. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so quite a quite an illustrious um hospitality career running um, large-scale clubs, uh, large restaurants, Michelin star restaurants uh, and right through to um, one of the pubs. So I thought I would get out of the bright lights and go and run a pub to have a bit of a break and discovered that it's even more work, harder work and everything from the accountant to the lawyer to the babysitter to the mother to the father to the you name it, um, everything. And that was quite a quite an experience. But part of it was Leaving all the big clubs to get away from the bright lights, and started running a pub in Primrose Hill, which was like Hollywood. So, Sasha Baron Cohen would, um, who lived opposite, would hang out his window and be like, "Ryan, you got the coffee machine on yet?" It's like, "No, mate, it's not even eleven o'clock yet. We're not opening. Come on." Um, but yeah, you, all the stars they would be looking after in the VIP floor down in the city, um, all sort of lived in the area, and when they walked through the through the pub doors for the first time, like. Ryan, what are you doing here? <laughs> and always had the same same reaction. What are you doing here? Oh, I just live up the road. Um, so yeah, it was quite a fantastic experience that um probably never dreamed of when I was um back in Dunedin um, doing my art direction work.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Now if you think about what made those, you know, those places sort of successful. What what stands out for you in terms of how they how they operated, how they marketed themselves? Um, you know, obviously, mm. like you know, location you know comes into it when you yeah. when you you know right right there amongst it. But when when you sort of step back, you put that uh, uh, you know today you, you're you're thinking about it from sort of sales and marketing perspective. Yeah. Um, any particular thoughts that sort of come to come to mind on those, those yeah, well, places
1: you? Work? See, it's interesting. You know, going from advertising for three and a half years as an art director to uh, running restaurants and clubs, and this is back in nineteen ninety nine. So there was no social media, but there was PR. You know, if we, if we had a big star, and, I, and I, when I say big, I mean big star, come, they would literally lock the doors after the entrance. And part of that was we wouldn't allow. Them, and this is how this is how we wouldn't allow popular. them to get out again. <laughs> no, we wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't allow paparazzi or anyone to come in. Yeah. that We had probably five different ways you could exit the building. So the reason that stars would come to this Michelin star restaurant, so if you think of it as tiers, so I call it the ringleaders. So if having the stars there are the ringleaders, um, that's why everyone else comes because they're like, who's going to be at uh, Titanic tonight? Um, or whenever we're booked. Um And it's sort of like the the attraction. So if you, if you look at AFQY and you see the marketing where we put in various people that are attending, then when people know that those people are attending, it attracts a range of people who want to speak to them. And I just call it the ringleader effect. Um, and similarly, when I was running clubs, another side of it was running guest lists, so if you wanted to get access to the China whites, uh, which was probably the, the creme de la creme of clubs at the time or Café de Paris, then you needed to know someone who ran a guest list who could get you access, and conversely, they wouldn't be running a guest list if they just let anybody in and took money from anybody, so they had to be a bit clever about it. Um, But, you know, when I'd be out, I would identify the right type of target audience, find the ringleader amongst the group, and then approach them and say, hey, mate, you've got a great group of people here. I've been over there with my people enjoying myself, watching you guys laugh your heads off, have a good time. Um, if you'd like to come to um, Café de Paris, China White, Browns, or any one of these clubs as a uh, VIP guest, then I can hook you up. But for you to get access to that, you're going to need to sell 100 tickets. And they're like, oh, no problem. So you give one VIP seat away or or, or opportunity away to the person who can handle it because they're the ringleader, and you get them to sell 100 tickets for you to their mates that come into the standard part of the club and that's the you know sort of you, you can look at the parallels between marketing to a target market and getting the early adopters your ringleaders um, and then your uh, what is the, the the big major group after the chasm um, but getting all the rest of them in um, so they the ringleaders attract the rest of your crowd the key clients attract uh, the range of clients and um Give the community the assurance that what you're providing is of value.
0: Very interesting. So, yeah, and and parallels too, I guess to to what we would call the influences, uh, you know, these days on uh, on social media as well, right? So, um, yeah, there's some 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 interesting so you, yeah so influences, I
1: guess you could say, uh, almost almost have the same. If you could call them self-made celebrities. Um, whereas, say, someone who's a music star or a TV star or movie star, it's through being in those movies and whatnot that they've become celebritized. But if you look at the likes of, say, the Kardashians, who have created their own celebrity level and you know, go back to when they started and they were getting a lot of jib. Now they're getting a huge amount of money. Um, what is, I think, Kylie Jenner charges $300,000 to do a post. Um, so that's not bad coin. Um, you know, to put up with a few people giving you a bit of shit in the early days to now be collecting three hundred thousand dollars, maybe more, yeah, for a post. Yeah. Um, but that's that's, yeah. Imagine Madonna or I don't know, um, maybe Rexer or any of these stars doing the same. Um, but the Jenners are self-made um, celebrities. Gotta give them, gotta give them credit for that.
0: It's incredible to be in a discussion where the Kardashians are getting credit, but that's where we are. That's where we are. This is the this is the, the, the yeah the reality in uh, in twenty twenty two. Because yeah, certainly in in the early days, they would not be held up, and and I mean their names were in lights. I suppose yeah. you could say, you know the. All over TV and so on, but they were made a lot of fun of. But they've they've really leveraged that uh, that position and uh, become uh, very well, important parts of of the sort of the sales machine, as it were, for for many many brands and including their own over over the years, right?
1: Yeah, well, uh, they they kind of followed the Paris Hilton playbook because Paris and Kim are mates, which is you, you put out a sex video, you get a lot of uh, heat for it, but off that heat, you then start getting offers, and from those offers, they turn into better offers. The next thing you've got your own TV show and the next thing you're a global icon. Um, so whether, whether it was constructed from the beginning with the sex tape um, or there are as a parent we're talking before, as a parent, you probably hope your kids took a different route to achieving that, but that is exactly sort of the, the basic route. But, Maybe maybe a little bit um, of a specific example, and we can we can shift to some more everyday <laughs> sales and marketing <laughs> examples. But yeah, there's there's lessons, and there are lessons in everything, whether it be good, bad, or the ugly. There are lessons that you can take out of anything you see.
0: Mm. Any other you know, lessons that sort of stick with you from uh, from that that time um, overseas, <laughs> and particularly the okay. UK? Yeah, so I guess just as singly as
1: as Creating the perception of the brand, right? So Titanic was extremely exclusive, um, scarce, uh, you know, thinking of scarcity uh, in terms of being able to access it. Um, so looking, one of, the, one of the things I remember actually from the pub pub days at the other end of the spectrum was once you cheapen a product, you can't ever go back. So you know, people that are racing into discounts because they think that might be the way to, drive business, um, sometimes it's just better to hold your ground, sweat it for a little bit longer, and um, then the dominoes will start to fall and you haven't cheapened your brand uh, or you haven't cheapened your product and you're still making uh, the price that you, you, know, you want. But in fact, th- th- i go another level on that, is increasing your pricing can actually drive sales um, when you might panic and think you need to drop your pricing to drive sales. Sometimes it's increasing the value, increasing that perception of value um, so that you are more exclusive um, that drives sales.
0: Mm-hmm. Good stuff. So what happened? You decided to come back to New Zealand? You eventually <laughs> just decided it's time to be a grown-up? Or how how did, how, did, how would you describe that tra- that transition? Because um, you could have stayed over there for a longer period. So look, I, you know,
1: I had a lot of fun and from going, from being the kid that would stand behind mum and dad to dancing, um, uh, being a professional dancer at some of the clubs, from Café de Paris um, to the Ministry of Sound, um, things like that were extremely fun. But you're right, it literally was a matter of deciding to grow up. I've uh, been in the club world for three years and um, let's just say I could have done with a bit of a health retreat by that stage. Uh, so I came home and um, put some weight on. <laughs> and um, yeah looked at uh, having a, a real life but you know some of some of what drove that was running those clubs you are exposed to a whole new different world um, and let's just call it what it is the underground right so you're dealing a lot with um, organized crime and you know some of those take the ball by the horns and negotiate situations popped up there uh, but you know, to, to be as bold as I say, I literally had friends disappear that um, went off to meet their doom in the probably the Thames um, as part of the turf wars and different things. I always managed to be the, the Kiwi Clown. That was my nickname, the Kiwi Clown, because I was always funny and cracking jokes, but managed to stay away from it. So it was, yeah, came with the territory, and you, you grew with it, I guess. But certainly after a while, I was like, no, I don't want to be part of this. So I came back to be came back to New Zealand to be a good little Kiwi um, and crack on with a with a decent life.
0: Cool. So I guess over the years that you know we've been connected, which would be probably a, a decade or so, I've known you sort of you know working across the across the tech sector, but you were also being involved. Uh, you were at Fairfax and, and Computer World, yeah. uh, account manager and, and sales manager. So that was. That was really sales that was just getting in and selling wasn't it what you yeah. what you did in the in the media world, so you know walk us through a little bit a little bit there and what it actually looked like because i'm 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 picking you're in a, a a role where you know you've got targets to meet you had to get results, but you've had to the the start the with you were you know you were you're probably a little bit fresh at uh Uh, At some aspects of that, so so walk us through what that was like. You've almost hit the nail
1: on the head. Let me let me give you my personal detail to the points you've just (laughs) made. So, I was really fresh. I came into sales, and that was my first official sales job. Yep. Um, and I thought that I was just going to be awesome, and I was shit. It was terrible. And um, in the early days, I was actually contemplating leaving and going back into art direction or running a pub or. I had many macinations and panics and worries. The, the thing that turned it around for me was I had the marketing manager of a company. So the marketing manager was XFMG, FMCG, and and that was toothpaste.
0: Fast-moving consumer goods. Yes, and they'd come into
1: being marketing manager of a big tech company. Um, so we had the meeting, and first introduction meeting, and they said, I've already identified Computer World as the publication that I'm going to invest all my money in. And uh, we're going to run a campaign and I'm going to look awesome. And everyone here who thinks I'm just a toothpaste person is going to know that I, I know my shit and I'm going to, you know, have a great campaign. going to be really successful. And I was like, okay, well, what are you thinking? Like, oh, well, I want to put $30,000 into print. So what should I do? Full pages? I don't know what you tell me. And I said, well, and this is where all of the sales um, t- uh, questions that I'd never been able to ask um, in an appropriate fashion just came flooding out. I was like, so what are your actual objectives? Oh, well, I want the phones to ring hot. I said, okay, well, print will never make the phones ring hot for first. So I've got to be honest about that. And I, oh, okay. What do you want to do? We want to sell Salesforce. And it was 2007 at the time. And I said, so sorry, um, Computer World is the wrong audience for Salesforce at this point in time. And you remember the days where we used to call um, people server huggers, right? So back in 2007, anything cloud-orientated, the IT manager, CIO even would say, Oh, no, there's a security threat with that. There's a problem because it's in the cloud. Um, we're going to stay with on-premise because when we were moving to the cloud, it was a huge reduction. And we even saw it at Fairfax. We went from five IT people in our building to one um, when Fairfax went to, well, um, you can call it the cloud. It was uh, over Citrix, so it wasn't quite cloud. But anyway, so we all these points. And what I said was, hey, look, I can't actually take your money and put it in the computer world. But what I can suggest is that we go and put it into the MBR and the Herald business. They're like, what? Isn't that your competitor? I said, yeah, but that's the right audience. So you want to advertise what Salesforce can do to the um, sales director, the CFO, the CEO, and uh, maybe the CMO. And uh so what we'll probably do is look at putting some stuff into the CIO publication beforehand so that we can provide them white papers about security. Because when, when you promote Salesforce and tell them what amazing things it can do for sales to those, you know, CEO, sales director, they're going to trot across the corridor yep. to their CIO and say, what is this Salesforce cloud thing? Yeah, yeah. And if the CIO hasn't been informed beforehand, they might say, oh, the security. So we ran a small campaign in CIO print and online, which was two security um, white papers. And they had a couple of hundred downloads um, because had it all trackable. And then the campaign launched in the Herald and the MBR, which was all about how Salesforce can turn your sales machine into a, you know, blah, 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 machine, whatever it was. Um, and they had, from memory, I think it's 141 or 147 downloads, um, which gave them 140-odd leads, something like 60 meetings and 20 medium business um, purchases. So the marketing manager come back to me and, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. We want – Here's sixty grand. We're going to double it. We're going to give you sixty grand. Do it. what do you want? To, what, what, what will you do? Sixty grand? I said, well, we'll do exactly the same if it's more of a Salesforce, but we'll get you to create new case studies, new stories, et cetera, so We won't th- repeat the content. Like, but what about you? Why don't you just put twenty k in the computer world? And I said, no, it's not going to work. And they're like, well, how do I look after you? I said, well, why don't you tell all your mates or your partners or something, and you know, share how I've helped you. Okay, I can do that. So the next thing you know, I'd gone from selling no advertising to giving away thirty thousand dollars, to giving away sixty thousand dollars, to collecting two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars in a month. And um, I was like, so if I just help people be successful, then I will make my sales as a result of word of mouth and it's spreading around. So I started getting called by everybody, and I became the central point. What played in my hand as well is that the typical big agencies where the the, um, agency people wanted to do Prada or Gucci or something like that, they didn't understand tech, whereas I've always grown up around tech. My mum was an MIS, predecessor to CIO, so I always understood tech and got it. So I was able to create campaigns not just from a creative point of view um, but from a media point of view. And also orchestrate them so that the, the different mediums all flow and work together, i.e. Let's educate the CIOs first through print and online to then uh, drive the sales through the line of business and uh, the C-suite and they end up talking together, producing a great result. So yeah, we, I became like a mini media agency and a mini creative agency because I ended up giving the creative ideas and the media book, um, plan to the client so that they would. Take it away and get their people to make it, and you come back and book and spend
0: the money with us. Worked sounds like sounds like a great uh, great approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you 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 moved from um from there into into Fairfax, which is also you know selling um yeah. To so the, that
1: was IDG and Fairfax were the same. Okay, okay. So that was around six and a half years, and I started as the account manager, uh, moved to marketing, um, promoted to marketing manager. And then got brought to back to sales manager because unfortunately um, i was the only person at that stage that had kept computer world um in the black and yeah came back and um, successfully did that again so uh, idg and fairfax did a asset swap where idg become fairfax and fairfax become idg in different countries so new zealand was one where idg who owned the computer world cio titles um, became fairfax but were licensed the titles and sadly, um, due to business performance, they lost the licenses and some of them are just produced online, I think, now. Um but out of IDG Australia.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um now you moved into more um after that, I think as mentioned it was you were working with, with Front probably when we connected. Yeah. Um, yeah, you really you were away from the media side to to actually yeah. selling uh you so know, that was technology my, products and services, right?
1: That was my first real um, software sales job, and um, you know, again, uh, swapping from media and marketing to uh, software and CIOs. Again, I thought I would be great, um, but um, actually, it wasn't too bad. Um, I had quite a few. Uh, so, a I averaged average one hundred thirty three percent of target. And did one quarter on one hundred and sixty percent, so it wasn't too bad but um what I was thinking of more was some of the um uh, challenges of growth within the company and um finding your way through them uh so I was auckland based auckland based um auckland based budget and target, but a wellington based manager so um I was a little bit forgotten, you could say. And the Auckland team who had the budget were jumping up and down. Um, but we had some we had some great wins. So I was, in terms of lessons, one organisation uh, that I managed to sell to from, I guess, Greenfields, I went down and visited them every week in Hamilton for eight weeks. And the competing product they were up against, they said, oh, we actually like the, the features of this a little bit better, the key features um, for the email platform, um, but we're going to go with you and Google because – you've turned up and we get a lot more from you turning up and the rest of the Google suite than we do from the couple of key features that we like. But that was, the, they emphasised the fact that we turned up and that relationship. And it's not just a relationship for a relationship's sake, not just turning up, but um, always brought answers, always brought pe- additional people. I remember sitting in one of the sessions and the IT admin person literally asked that question, if we go Google, I have no job after this? So I opened up the admin back end and said, you'll definitely have a job because, and I turned around to the, the non-tech people said, does anyone want to try and um, change the settings of uh, the back end here? And they looked at all the technical stuff and everyone was a bit cross-eyed and went, uh, no, no. So instantly the that person turned into a champion for the product because they saw their job existing um, going into the future. But um. Yeah, we, we almost opened a Hamilton office as a result of that, but that also coincided with my leaving. Um, another thing related to relationship, I came in and closed a deal that had been sitting open for two and a half years. Wow. And um, and yeah, I think it bugged a few people, Or one person in particular. they can remain nameless, but um, that was one of the internal challenges. I guess doing well in, uh, in a space where others had struggled. But what it was was they were – This one particular person was really pushing that old school coin-operated sales mentality. Sign, 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 sign. But there's no real compelling reason um, to do the upgrade. Uh, So I just nurtured and coaxed the relationship and within three months had the signature. But similarly, I went into another large organisation with a relationship. Um, We can leave the company name out of it, but it was the CIO of one of the largest companies in in the country. And when I had the meeting booked, they're like, Oh, oh my goodness. Oh oh how, how do you get to meet with him? I said, Well, I've got a relationship with that person. They're like, Oh, okay, okay. And I was like, Why is everyone getting so fricking cagey? You know, like shouldn't you be happy? Like, this is the biggest one of the biggest companies and you know, I'm meeting the CIO. Like, uh, well, your predecessor um got walked off their premises. So we're quite surprised that they're letting us back in there. Um and I was like, Yeah, but I'm not that person. This is me, this is my relationship. So again, it's just a little uh, from from a sales perspective, how important relationships can be to uh, men bridges that obviously I didn't break myself, but um, yeah, whatever it was, they thought it was so important that, that we probably weren't going to be allowed back in. But we went back in, and um, that's where I I think made that they bought their first Google search appliance, um, which they hadn't done for years, been looking at looking at for seven years, but did finally. And again, through relationships, um, we got to the, this is one of the learning things, right? So here I am, I get the signature on the paper and I'm fist pumping privately going, yes, we made the sale. And the project manager goes, right, now I'll hand you over to procurement and it'll be about a six week process to go through procurement. And um, literally they needed to order by a certain date to have it arrive by a certain date to be able to do the integration to the internal systems to be able to meet their launch date, which was already publicised internally. So um, we use that to leverage and, and go back up the chain, as you can imagine, and say, this is the situation. We need to expedite your procurement process so that you can get your thing installed to meet your launch date, or we just move your launch date out. And, of course, they said, well, we're not moving our launch date out, but if I didn't have the breadth of relationships across the organisation, then I wouldn't have had the ability to get that six-week procurement process turned into one day. <laughs> And have the box ordered on time. So yeah, relationships, relationships, relationships. But this this comes back to AFQY: meet the person, not the suit, right? Because you can have a relationship at the suit level and it's all about objectives and KPIs and what are the facts and figures. But when it comes to the crunch, that doesn't that doesn't get your project across the line. It's the relationship of how you're going, how are the kids, what's happening in your life, you know, those deeper personal level discussions. And it's not rocket science, but there's some people in sales, cause I've come across plenty of them, that just think it's about sell, 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 sell. But if you take a step back and think about it it's a relationship and how can you help, um, the more you help people achieve their objectives, the more they will feed in because they're not getting treated like the stereotypical salesperson does. They're being helped, and therefore they're more than happy
0: to refer you on um, to their friends. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, so somewhere along the lines, uh, you started AFQY, A Few Quiet Yarns, uh, series of of events. You've also got involved in social media. So you know, have these sort of next few years sort of un, unfolded from um you know, from from where you were there with With that period at at Frond and and really getting established in the tech world uh, to, you know, to where you are now. What's, uh, you know, how do those pieces come together? Yeah, so um, I think AFQY and the
1: Ryan the Lion brand and a few different changes around work all coincided um, because I actually left Frond and set up my own hybrid agency and we did sales, marketing and agency Together for the tech space because the tech space, as I mentioned before, was quite underserved by the big agencies. And um, yeah, uh, I'll come back to an anecdotal story on that one. But um, so the idea, the, the pitch was, um, you know, your marketing team do all this work, do all the numbers crunch, understand the market, then brief in the agency for their campaigns of what they're going to sell to, you know, generate the money, and just the night before it goes to market, the sales team get an email or an update or a brief saying this is what it is. And the sales team go, oh, this is so wrong. I'm embarrassed. I'm not even going to take this to, I'm not even going to tell my clients about this. And um, this is what leads to the classic finger pointing, you know, know, pointing left and right, where sales blame marketing, marketing blame sales. And as soon as you tell that, the instant reaction from the person I'm speaking to is, oh, we're just having this problem right now. How can you fix it? And it's like, well, uh, what we we would now call cross-functional teams Um, getting sales and marketing together um, and working through. And in the early days, there were some really particular challenges where um, sales were given the opportunity to get involved in marketing. So they maybe um, were over-exuberant. So we had to use a bit of those club land negotiating skills to manage those um, colourful salespeople um, but get things going. But Um, I brought in a partner and um, we had one client who said, look, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. So I sold um, or exited out of that to my then partner and took the client offer um, and and, um, worked with them to um, a sales marketing management role to, I guess, in some ways take them to the next level. Um, But then uh, left that organisation and and that's when I set up AFQI had a bit of a practice run, I guess, uh, and really realising what I wanted to focus on, which was um, showing people how they can behave in a much better way. If you think of all the stereotypes and obviously sales. So if you, you've been to AFQI, and um, can't remember if you've been to one where I did the spiel at the beginning around um, you know, the stereotype of sales and how we don't need to treat each other that way, and if we just help each other like I did with the marketing manager from the toothpaste background, um, like I, I could have walked away with $30,000 order and never again would, I've got, would I have got another order. Um, or, or in, you know, but I ended up walking away with a quarter of a million dollars worth of orders and ongoing growing business because I helped them achieve their objectives rather than taking the money um, in, in the instance. So, yeah, AFQI, um, meet the person, not the suit. Going back to those comments I made about relationships and how it helped me with the various projects, and yeah, very is, refreshing. Very refreshing. Yeah, you treat people right, and good things will happen. I guess is the the bottom line.
0: Yeah, but I, I did enjoy the the format of, of the event, and uh, you know, it's very much that social leaning rather than uh, that that, so, that anybody's turning up with a yeah. with some sort of idea in mind to sell. Right, which in some ways is is quite counterintuitive. Right, so here's the salesman running an event and you're not allowed to do any selling there. It's great. And I still to this day, especially with um, uh,
1: international marketing managers who are maybe Australian or even further afield and they don't understand New Zealand landscape, I guess you could say, but they they go, where do we put our banners? Where do we put our speak? Do we get a list? Do we get this? It's like, no, no. You come and network and build a relationship and um, essentially prove yourself. And rather than you having to sell, Buyers buy. They're like, what? And it's almost like um, you're asking people to walk across hot coals or to do something that, you know, jump off a cliff they don't want to jump off. Um, So, yeah, a a lot of organizations, um, the New Zealand side of it, want to come on board, um, but the money or purse holders from international seats um, don't allow it. So,
0: this is in terms of your sponsors. Yeah, your so sponsors. So
1: we find that generally New Zealand-owned organisations um, are much more inclined to become part of that event. But, of course, we've created other events that do fit the model that people um, want to work to. And, you know, while I wouldn't say that they get as good a results out of it, they get the results that ticks the boxes. And um, to me it's a little bit sad, but it is also the way the world works. So sometimes you got to work with the world and, not push against it the, all the time, um, and I think you talked about it before when we were talking about the kids. And you said, "Can we have some kind of balance there?" So it's just about having some balance um, and enabling the AFQY to meet the market as well as the market to meet AFQY.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. And you've had your rugby, um, yeah, brand in the background. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Oh well, that one's cooking away. Um, and it has been for a number of years, and I've been so focused on AFQI. Um, but uh, that is – we've actually got that uh, through to uh, having the design work done and our um, group of ambassadors um, in the background. So we'll be launching that in the 2023 season, and it's a rugby-specific um, community. And as we're just seeing now with the Black Ferns, literally – Anyone can play rugby. And it used to be that you could be short, you could be tall, you could be fat like I was, play prop, um, but there's a space for everyone on the rugby field. Um, and, of course, now with the Black Ferns, um, you know, any, all, all genders as well, so it's not just about the boys. Um, but the thing around rugby and it's, and what I built with AFQY and also Sassive, which is on that list, is it's about building communities and... While AFQY and SASSIV uh, are more particularly around work, rugby is around more around out of work or humans because, um, yeah, from my coaching experience, I had a young kid who was um, in the Auckland national teams, and I had to pick them up from a situation to get pick them up, take them to rugby, but they happened to be in a situation which was pretty unsavoury in their neighbourhood. And I thought they could very easily have joined the uh, gang party that was happening next door to where they lived. Um, And of course, rugby was their only outlet. They weren't a um, academic kid, and rugby was their outlet, and that was what kept them on the right side of the tracks. So when I looked at it and that sort of twigged, and it's also part of my general thinking around communities, is that um, communities uh, provide all the missing parts. So where he maybe wasn't getting um, good role models from some areas of his life rugby can provide that from the other parents the coaches the other teammates so they can provide and set examples so just like when you're in the workplace um, your workplace is a community and um, your industry is a community and you can uh, get a whole range of uh, experience and learnings and insights from your peer-to-peer examples and peer-to-peer discussions and that's what AFQY is about. In fact, the company is called Peer-to-Peer Limited. Oh, okay. AFQY is, uh, is a brand. Sassaf is a brand. Rugby is a brand. Um, but they're all about generating uh, peer-to-peer connections, um, sharing, learning, education, and most importantly, uh, connection.
0: Fantastic. Anything else we've missed before we go to the big final question, Ryan?
1: No, but I was the yeah, cognizant of, how we might've gone way off track from sales and marketing focus to um, all the different, but if maybe the, the takeaway for people there is that sometimes it's not the classic textbook. Um, It can be from outside the, from outside the playbook. And I don't know if it's just part of my genes, but I, I love um, trying to uh, be original and tackle problems in a new way. Um, I do understand the, um, safety and consistency of a playbook, but um, you know we're all humans. And I think they can get a little bit, a little bit tedious, and you just don't know what you know. If, what if you never put that different ingredient in the mix and, and found that amazing new recipe, right? But um, yeah, I think yeah. Let's go to the let's go to the final question. Mm.
0: Well, I think uh, you know I guess what that says to me is just that importance of of empathy, right? So for whoever you're you're selling to, you're marketing to. You know, you've got to keep putting yourself in in their shoes, and then thinking of, well, you know, what could you do to help, you know, help them, right? And that that's when I, you know, as we're listening along, it's you know, that seems to be the the approach that you've taken as a very empathetic uh, view. It's the same with your your events. You know, it's very empathetic to uh, you know to the individuals that uh, that that turn up. Um, no one wants to go to a and a. An event, and then have uh, you know some product service kind of pushed yeah. on them when they're they're there actually just to you know relax and and uh, uh, meet some folks and so on. So that that certainly comes through to me. Um, but yeah, we do like to finish up on on you know hearing, um, I guess one piece of advice from you. And and so yeah, it's if you could give. One piece of advice to to our listeners that they could take away uh, an action tomorrow what would what would that be Ryan?
1: Well that's a really big question and I've got about 35,000 different tips I'd love to give everybody. Um, so when I think about it, I think probably at, at a high level um, I'll give two high level and, and finite level. So the high level was experiment. Um, don't be afraid to give something a go in a different way or look at how you can solve it Um, because that's where innovation happens. That's where big leaps are made. And if you keep doing the same thing the same way, you always get the same results, right? So sometimes you might come a cropper, but you've got to take that risk. So experiment, especially in sales and marketing, right? Yeah, you could joke if if, um, the Kardashians didn't experiment, they wouldn't be where they are today, right? But the more finite one is... um, Get engaged. So from a social media perspective, I coach a lot of people, train a lot of organisations, how to use social media. And I learned by doing. Like when I was shy and stood behind my mom and dad, I actually made a decision as I got into the seventh form and was sick of being the um, studious geek. And I was like, nah, I want to get out there and enjoy life. Um, so I actually made the conscious effort to give it a go. And therefore my thing is... Give it a go over social media. Write a post, and the simple thing is, document, don't create. It's a you know, pretty uh, well-known cliche, but what that does is it takes away the pressure of, oh, I've got to think of something amazing. It's like, no, you're at an event or you're running your event. Just take a photo and tell the story about that event, um, or take a story and tell, uh, take a photo and tell the story of what's happening. And of course, if it's LinkedIn, it's going to be business context related. We're seeing a lot more personal, but I don't want to sort of go down into the weeds of every aspect of it. But the thing is, give it a go, get started if you haven't, um, and if you do get started and it and it fails, keep experimenting.
0: Yeah, and and look, I, you know, think of the things of yours that I've seen. Is you know, you've done a lot on the events front. You've done a lot on on social media and you've got in, you've given it a go, and then you've just tweaked and adjusted along the way. And, you know, it's, it's for you, it's built a really big profile. Your, your networks are, uh, are, are huge online and offline, um, and uh, maybe it, maybe it's a question for another day, but uh, I remember being at AFQY and uh, and having you be able to introduce every single person in the room, and I think there was about 100 people there on that particular yeah uh one so uh you know you've you've really doubled down on uh uh you know doing a great job and uh you know of those things that you've done and put in the mahi so uh yeah thank you very much well done and uh thank you for sharing with us today Ryan. my pleasure thank you for having me it's been uh, good fun excellent all right thanks well thanks everyone for joining us uh here on New Zealand sales and marketing. Uh, insider, and of course, um, a special thanks to our show partners, Gorilla Technology. Uh, you're welcome to uh, to get in touch if you need any uh, uh, any help on uh, te- from a technology services and strategy perspective. Um, and Forty Thieves Nut Butters for uh, for supporting the show as well. All right, thanks everyone. We'll catch you on the next episode. See ya. Thanks for listening in to this episode of the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. If you enjoyed it, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite app for fortnightly episodes. For other great New Zealand podcasts, such as New Zealand Everyday Investor, NZ Business Podcast, This Climate Business, and more, head across to podcasts.nz. And if it's technology expertise you're after for a small to medium organisation, then make your way to Gorillatechnology.com. And special thanks to our friends at 40 Thieves Nut Butters. Listeners to the show can get a 20% discount when purchasing online. Just go to 40thieves.co.nz and use the promo code INSIDER20. See you next time.